you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me this evening to Amos 7. Title of the sermon, Mercy and Judgment, looking at verses 1 through 9 this evening. Uh, Amos 7 is a, a, um, a chapter where we see a direct shift in the book of Amos. That shift will uh, guide us through the final three chapters of the book, a notable change in the character of the book. For the first six chapters of the prophecy, Amos has been speaking directly to the northern nation of Israel about their sin, uh, the hardness of their hearts, the inevitable judgment that will follow because of it. But like with many prophetic books, we don't necessarily only find within it prophetic pronouncements. Uh, to this point, we have only found prophetic pronouncements. In other words, if we were, uh, if we were hearing Amos... Uh, as we have been reading Amos, the first ch six chapters of the book would be Amos standing up somewhere within the city and proclaiming the word of the Lord. And so he proclaims a word to a certain group of people, and then maybe the next day or the next week or the next month, depending on uh, the Lord's timetable, he's up proclaiming the word of the Lord to someone else again. But that's not the only thing we get within prophetic books. We also oftentimes find narrative. And this evening, as we step into Amos 7, that is what we step into. We go from just hearing Amos proclaim the word of the Lord to the people of Israel to Amos now telling the readers of, of his writings something in a narrative fashion. So now Amos himself is describing something rather than Amos simply declaring something. And as we step into Amos 7 this evening, we find that transition take place. Through Amos 6, Amos's declarations of sin and justice, judgment we have read and we have heard. In Amos 7, the prophet now narrates events that took place. We would assume that these events took place after Amos's other pronouncements, but we can't be certain. We step from Amos then speaking to the nation of Israel to Amos, we might say, speaking to you and I. Amos first recording everything that he declared, and now Amos telling us things that he has seen and things that he has experienced. And he begins by telling us of visions. Visions that he had and his interactions with the Lord regarding those visions. So we read in verses 1 through 3 of Amos 7. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. And behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. So Amos tells us of a vision that the Lord showed him. In this vision, Amos says, God formed grasshoppers in the shooting up of the latter growth. Now, many other translations will not use the word grasshopper here, but will use the word locust. There are several words in the Hebrew to describe insects, and not just insects of various species, but even insects in various stages of development, from like a larva stage and then going through the various elements uh, or various stages of their lives. Now, in our King James Bible, um, this word that is used here, grasshoppers, is sometimes called locust. Other times it's grasshopper, depending on the particular context within which it's given. To this end, it appears that the King James translators believed that the words were more generalized to describe insects which devour crops than necessarily uh, a, a direct word uh, connecting to a direct type 
of insect. Uh, maybe then they believe that the Hebrew language had a direct word for locusts or another direct word for, for grasshopper. Uh, it seems like some translators believe that, but I don't believe the King James translators did because they seem to use the same Hebrew words and, and simply sometimes in the context they'll use the word grasshopper to describe it. Other times in the context they'll use the word locust to describe what's going on. And in this case, of course, um, we see the word grasshopper, but more, more specifically, either way, regardless of what word ought to be there in our English, the idea, the point, is that Amos in his vision saw God create a crop-devouring insect. And that crop-devouring insect was, in fact, devouring crops. So that's the point. It was eating the grass of the land, and the Bible says that it was eating the grass of the land in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. This would be a reference to a second harvest of the season. And specifically, it, would, it was described as the time after the king's mowings. Now, there are various theories as to what it means that it was after the king's mowings. Some believe this means that the grasshoppers came within this vision after the king had taxed the people by gleaning their first crop. So within the context of this idea, uh, what we would expect is that the king would tell everyone in the land that the first harvest of the crop would go to him for taxes. And then after the first harvest of the crop went to him, then they were able to plant again, and then the second harvest of, the, of whatever given crop would then be able to be for themselves. And that's the idea behind this. And so the picture, if that is the case, if that is why this speaks here of the, the, latter, um, the latter growth after the king's mowings, then the idea would be that the king got his portion... But then the Lord sent the grasshoppers to devour the portion that would have been the people's. And so now the people would be in a place of judgment, of, uh, of, of famine, of misery, because they did not receive their gleanings for the year. Now, some disagree with this idea because they say, well, why would, uh, in a vision, why would Amos see God spare the king and then punish the people? So to that end, some people have spiritualized this vision. And they believe that it's Jehovah himself that is the king here who loved and cared for the people of Israel. And because of their sin in the latter days, um, the up and coming generation, the second harvest of the people of Israel would be devoured. Others still see the idea here of the latter growth simply as a timetable for judgment without any necessary commentary on what the timing might be, simply the idea that in the latter days of Israel's kingdom, the grasshoppers would come and devour the harvest in a, in a more uh, broad-brushed way. Uh, which one of these is correct, of course, um, we can't really know. But I would say that that, that, that that third one, that more generalized one, the idea that Israel is in a place of judgment, and as Amos looks at the, the concept of the grasshoppers coming and eating the latter growth, uh, this would have been the most devastating time to eat that harvest as it was just starting to grow. And so the, the general idea of judgment, without necessarily commenting upon the timing, seems to me, make a lot of sense to me. And thus... If that's the case, the point of these first two visions, visions which do not come to pass, 
exists not to reveal any particular plan of God for any particular judgment against the people. It's not necessarily the case that Amos saw this vision and, and saw this is a vision in its fullness that is exactly going to come upon the people, say, this year or whatever the case may be, but rather to show, it's a vision to show God's wrath against sin and God's determination that he would judge. But then it also shows something else. It shows Amos's heart for the people of Israel. And it shows also God's love and desire for mercy whenever he can possibly give it. So Amos sees this vision of the grasshoppers, this first vision, and it's eating the grass of the land, the latter growth after the king's mowings. And the timing of the beginning of the shooting of the latter growth, meaning that it would have been uh, that, that time when the plants are most vulnerable and the time where the grasshoppers could do the most damage. And so Amos sees the devastation upon the land in this vision sense, and he does something really fascinating. Amos cries out to God for mercy. He asks God to forgive the people. And he justifies this petition of mercy by asking, By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. Jacob is the man whose name was changed to Israel in the days of his return from the land of, uh, into the land of promise following 20 years with his mother's brother Laban in Haran. The night before his entrance into that territory to confront his brother Esau, Genesis 32 tells us that Jacob wrestled with a man until the breaking of the day or until sunrise. The man saw that Jacob was prevailing in that battle and he demanded that Jacob let him go. Within that narrative, in Genesis chapter 32, we read this in verses 26 through 28. And he, that would be this man who wrestled with Jacob, said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he, that would be Jacob, said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he, that would be the man, said unto him, that would be Jacob, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Thus the man Jacob was renamed Israel by God on that day. And yet throughout the histories, throughout the poetries, and throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, we find two scenarios where God yet called the nation Jacob rather than Israel. The first is when God was attempting to highlight the physical nature of the people, to, to, to connect them to their physical lineage, to emphasize their bloodline rather than necessarily their spiritual lineage, to emphasize their connection to the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob rather than their connection to the covenant itself. That's what we talked about in Genesis this morning. That in Jeremiah chapter 31 when God speaks of Israel and Judah, and then as we look through the various other prophecies in Jeremiah 33, and as we uh, considered uh, the promises of God there, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when God promised that he would restore Jacob, and that he would heal Jacob, and he would regather Jacob, we find there an idea where God is, is emphasizing the fact that he is speaking of the, the, the physical lineage. He is speaking of the blood lineage of the nation, 
making sure that we don't uh, muddy the waters between God's promises to this, the, God's spiritual promises and God's physical promises to the nation. Now, the second reason why God would use Jacob rather than Israel is to emphasize the nation's manner of living. If the people are living like Jacob rather than living like Israel. Now, the name Jacob and the name Israel are both somewhat significant. The name Jacob is a word which means supplanter or deceiver. And indeed, Jacob was in his younger years a bit of that. But then we find that there came a day after he wrestled with the Lord when God changed his name and he was no longer associated as the one who was the supplanter or the deceiver, but instead he, he became associated with this time where he prevailed with God, the name Israel meaning prince or prince with God. And so there were times where the nation failed to live up to their covenant obligations. And we find in those times that God sees fit to call the nation Jacob rather than Israel because they're not living like Israel. They're living like Jacob in those days. So those are the two different scenarios where we would see God use the name Jacob rather than Israel to refer to his people. So Amos makes a plea here. He asks for God to forgive the nation and he says, By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. Now, Amos is seeing this vision primarily pertaining to only a portion of the 13 tribes of Israel, right? Only 10 of those 13 tribes. You say, Pastor, I thought there were 12 tribes. Well, no, yes, but no, right? There were 12 tribes if we only count Joseph. But Joseph's family lineage was broken up into two. Each of his sons was given uh, a portion to account for the double portion that was given as the birthright. Joseph was given that, so his sons Ephraim and Manasseh each got an equal portion with the other tribes of Israel. So you actually had 13 tribes. However, one of those tribes did not receive an inheritance. And that was the tribe of Levi. Levi, the Lord, was their inheritance, and so they lived in the outskirts and the suburbs of various cities, and of course they ministered in the temple and the tabernacle. So when I say 13 tribes, that's what I'm speaking of, not necessarily 13 inheritances, only 12 inheritances, but 13 tribes if we include Levi, and of course um, most of Levi went down, if you recall, when Jeroboam uh, and Rehoboam split in those days and northern Israel was established when Jeroboam sought to establish the false worship system that we've talked about in Bethel and, and in Dan and, and in Gilgal, the majority of the Levites fled down to Judah so that they could continue ministering in the temple and uh, continue ministering before the Lord. To that end, we say that 10 of those 13 tribes primarily remained in the northern kingdom of Israel. So, Amos uh, is referencing the northern kingdom. That is who he's prophesying to. But he calls them here still Jacob. And he pleads for the nation, saying that if such a devastation, this idea of the grasshoppers coming and the latter growth and, and, and eating up this, this, this harvest, whether that be a literal vision of a literal harvest or whether that simply be God saying that in the latter days of Israel, he would send devourers to destroy the people, Amos says, what would happen to the nation? They're small. They could never recover from such a judgment. And to this end, Amos pleads for mercy. And I love this. I'm actually going to talk a lot more about this next week, and I don't want to steal from that message. But I, think about this with me just briefly. 
Amos is called, and for six chapters, he has stood up and he has spoken the word of the Lord against this wicked nation and their king. And we get this idea that when a pastor stands in this pulpit here and he gets up and he tells the truth, or when I sit across from you in a counseling session and I have to tell you hard truths and I have to tell you things that need to change and I have to tell you that you're doing wrong, it comes into our minds that, well, pastor's saying that because he's judging me, because he looks down upon me, because he, uh, he, he thinks he's better than me, or because he, uh, he, he says this and, and, and he proclaims that, that the Lord will judge if, if, if things don't change because um, that's, that's the way he feels. And yet what we find here which is very common among ministers, is that they take no delight in proclamations of judgment. They don't desire to have to look into the people's eyes, their mini- the eyes of those unto whom they minister, and tell them that they're on the wrong path. And they certainly take no delight when that path leads to judgment. Much to the contrary. Maybe the nation of Israel didn't know this, But in Amos' times, in the visions of the night, when the Lord was showing him things, and Amos was seeing the Lord's proclamations of judgment before he proclaimed them before the nation, Amos was pleading with God for mercy. Mercy for this people who by no means deserved it. It wasn't even his people. He was from Judah. And yet he was pleading for these people. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. And what we find then in verse 3 is that this plea of Amos is both heard and regarded. The Bible says that the Lord heard Amos' plea to forgive and the Lord repented and he said, it shall not be. Now we talked not too long ago at the beginning of Amos 5 about the idea of the Lord repenting. The Bible tells us that the Lord is not a man that he should repent. The idea here is not that the Lord never repents at all, but that the Lord does not repent as a man does, right? The Lord is not fickle in repentance. He does not uh, have to change his actions because he made a mistake or because he didn't foresee a circumstance or because he had changed his mind all of a sudden or because he had a good day or a bad day and uh, that changed his mood. However, the Lord does repent in that our unchanging God will face situations where the circumstances around him change due to the choices of men. And in those times, God changes his actions in order to remain consistent to his unchanging character in direct response to man's actions toward him as a means means of, of his own consistency. And that's what we find here. God decreed in this vision a judgment upon the nation of some sort. He showed that judgment to his prophet. Amos sees the judgment. He is deeply troubled in heart. Knowing just how hard it would be upon the nation, he intercedes for that nation. He pleads to the Lord to forgive the nation, not to levy upon them this great judgment. And God, a God who has always 
regarded the intercession of the righteous. A God who has always heard the appeals of the righteous regards this mediation, regards this intercession, accepts Amos's appeal, and pardons the nation. We'll think through a little bit more of that at the end of our time tonight. Continuing in verses 4 through 6. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire. And it devoured the great deep and did eat up a part. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord God. Amos then sees a second vision of judgment. And in this vision, the Bible says, The Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep and did eat up a part. We find in this second vision not not only a much more severe idea of judgment than the first, but also a less clear idea in its communicative purpose. The first vision had a connection to an event, a direct event, The latter harvest, after the king's mowings, grasshoppers come and devour that harvest while it's still in its infancy, while it's still vulnerable. This second vision isn't quite as clear. And this, in fact, would support the theory that the things which Amos is seeing are more general than they are specific. Amos sees a fire that breaks out within the nation by the decree of God. And one so hot and violent that it not only destroys the land, but it dries up the seas. And so, again, we would see something that is perhaps beyond just uh, a physical judgment and seeing a a hyper-exaggerated vision of judgment here. And Amos' appeal is the same. Except this time we see Amos ask not that God would forgive, but that God would cease. In the first vision, Amos sees it and says, Lord, forgive. Where would Jacob arise? He is small. In the second vision, Amos says, Lord, cease. Don't do this. Just stop. How could Jacob arise? He is small. The nation is small and relatively speaking weak. Had it not been for the blessing of the Lord, the nation never would have existed in the first place. And apart from the continued mercy of God, the nation had no hope for the future. Very reminiscent of the days of Israel in the wilderness where God appealed to the nation to understand that He did not choose them for their greatness, but He chose them in their weakness. We read in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set His love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because He would keep His oath, which He had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondmen, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God tells them in Deuteronomy 7 that He did not redeem them because they were a great people. They were the fewest of all people, in fact. But because the Lord loved them and He would keep His promises unto their fathers. This is the idea unto which Amos appeals here. They are but a small people. And had the Lord not loved them, they never would have even become anything in the land. And if the Lord's blessing did not continue upon them, if such judgment fell upon them, they could not stand in such a day. So God, in response again to Amos' intercession, the Bible says, repented of the judgment and it did not come to pass. Thus, two times now, Amos has seen a great judgment. And though Amos was called to deliver this message of judgment, 
Though Amos was not even a part of the northern nation of Israel, yet Amos' heart was filled with compassion for this nation, and he begged God for mercy, which they in no way deserved. And God regarded Amos' appeal. But that doesn't mean God was simply going to let everything go either. So God shows Amos one more vision. And in this vision, God makes a final point within the scope of Amos giving us the narrative of the visions which he saw. We read this in verses 7 through 9. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So Amos sees a wall in a vision, and the Bible says that this wall was built by a plumb line. And also, the Lord standing upon the wall with a plumb line in his hand. Now, a plumb line is a cord or a string which terminates with a heavy pointed weight. The weight is always naturally drawn directly toward the earth. And since gravity does what gravity does, when a weight on a string is started at a point and brought down from that point, it will always go directly down to the ground. So the idea of a plumb line is, well, it serves several things within construction. It could serve both to uh, a building and a, a tearing down purpose, but it serves very well in construction to determine whether or not walls or structures are properly constructed and specifically whether they are straight up and down. Uh, nowadays, we use levels for such things. It's a little more convenient, but a plumb line is still a very useful tool in many different scenarios within construction. So the idea of a plumb line then is it presents a standard by which other things are measured. And it presents an accurate standard of straight up and down. And when that standard is set next to something else, we can determine whether or not that other thing is also straight. Because the plumb line will be straight. It is an accurate standard. So if a person drops a plumb line and the wall is farther or nearer at the top or at the bottom of that plumb line, the problem is not the plumb line because the plumb line is only hanging. The problem is the wall. Somewhere within the scope of that wall, something is not straight up and down. It's not square. The wall does not properly conform to the standard. And the wall will always be the problem. Because the plumb line simply hangs straight down. The plumb line simply reveals reality as it exists in a world that is affected by this thing that we call gravity. It'll always be straight because it simply adheres to the laws of physics. The problem then, if there is a problem, is with the thing against which the standard is measured. So God shows Amos a vision of himself standing against a wall with a plumb line in his hand. And his message is that he would take a plumb line and he would set it in the midst of Israel. And he's going to measure Israel against a standard. 
and see if Israel measures up. See, Israel has already fallen short and God was going to judge them with the grasshoppers and Amos says, don't do it. And God says, I won't do it. He was going to judge them with the fire and Amos says, cease. And God says, I will cease. But then God says, make no mistake, Amos, though I have shown mercy, that mercy will not last forever. There's coming a day where I am going to set that plumb line in the midst of Israel. And on that day, if that wall is not straight, it's coming down. So he says that there's coming a day when he would not pass by them anymore. The idea is not just that he would not walk past them, but the idea is that he would not walk past them without putting that plumb line against them. There's coming a day where he will no longer pick up the plumb line and say, well, we'll give you a little more time, but that plumb line will be dropped and they will be measured by that standard. And in that day, God says, the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and the house of Jeroboam will be destroyed with the sword. God references this people in three distinct ways. As Isaac, the father of Jacob, perhaps expressing how long the nation had operated in some measure of spiritual compromise. As Israel, that was the covenant name of Jacob, reminding them that they are actually under a covenant and that that covenant is the plumb line by which they will be measured. And then finally, as Jeroboam, Jeroboam being that first king of the northern tribes of Israel after they seceded from the house of David, perhaps reminding them that as a nation, they were indeed accountable to him. All of the focus, however, is on their spiritual centers and that God would tear them down in the day that he held the standard of his righteousness against the manner of their religious observances. So we had today three visions that God gave to Amos and how Amos handled those visions in a narrative fashion as Amos describes for us what he saw and the interaction he had with the Lord. And in like fashion, I would like to draw three applications out of it this evening for us to think through from this passage. First is a question. And the question is this. What do we have apart from God's mercy, Christian? In the day of God's judgments, Amos asked the Lord, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. Amos recognized what God had told the nation from the beginning, that their value was not in themselves. Their value was actually rooted in the one who had redeemed them. They were not beautiful because of them. They were beautiful because of the God who had chosen them. They were beautiful because of the God who had redeemed them. That was where their value lies. That was where their, 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 uh, their essence truly consisted. And Christian, this is not only true of Israel. There are many in the world who struggle with what the world calls a bad self-image or low self-esteem. The idea behind these concepts is that these men and women think very little of themselves. And so they walk through life believing that they have no worth and they have no value. And the world's solution is to attempt to convince them to give themselves value, to confer upon themselves value, 
to allow themselves, regardless of their flaws or foibles or, or shortcomings, to allow themselves to see themselves as having any uh, a great amount of value that, that, that they can conjure up within themselves. No matter how insufficient or incapable they are to convince themselves that they are in themselves enough and that that should be enough for them. Who cares what others think of me? Who cares how others perceive me? Who cares what society thinks? Who cares what anyone thinks? I have, I, I, I believe in me, right? That sort of an idea. But the Bible suggests a different way of thinking. A way of thinking which actually flies very much in the face of the modern sensibility of self-esteem and of self-image. So that whether you are capable or incapable in the physical sense, whether you're intelligent or unintelligent, whether you are skilled or unskilled, charismatic or shy, beautiful or ugly, that you would recognize in yourself and before God that you have nothing to commend yourself in yourself. Sure, there's a contingency of the population that already feels that, that they have nothing to commend themselves. Their heart has told them that for one reason or another, because of their incapacities or inabilities, always rooted in comparing themselves to others, by the way. Low self-esteem is not something that exists just in ourselves, if we, if we even talk about the term. It is always rooted in how I see myself compared to how I see others and how I compare myself to others, which the Bible already says is not wise. And of course the world says, nope, see yourself differently. See yourself as better than that. But in fact, the Bible kind of levels everyone out the other way. Instead of the world's perspective or the world's strategy, which is, let's take everybody... And let's raise them all so that everybody, whether they're talented or not, whether they're intelligent or not, whether they're, they're, they're beautiful or not, let's raise them all and say everybody thinks very highly of themselves and everybody thinks they are enough. That's what the world is seeking today. The Bible says let's do it the other way. That whether you're beautiful or not, that whether you're intelligent or not, that whether you're capable or not, you recognize that you have nothing to commend yourself. But rather, as Isaiah 64, 6 says, we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. It doesn't matter how moral I am or how nice I am or how capable I am or how rich I am. All of your capabilities, all of your efforts, all of your righteousnesses, none of it impresses God. In fact, all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And the world around us is supposed to be sufficient simply in and of itself to convince us of this. David wrote in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? That does not sound like a man that has great self-esteem. A man who really is, is, is very confident in himself. He looks around at the world around him and he says, wow, I'm small and I'm insignificant and I don't matter at all. Except to this. That we matter to God. See, when compared to the greatness of the created world around us, we are truly nothing. We are small. We are insignificant. We are of very little actual consequence. To this end, there is not really anything in us by which we should feel anything other than insignificant. 
So you have intelligence. Good for you. Men may be impressed. God is not impressed. You'll live, you'll die, and eventually you'll be forgotten. Or if you become actually influential enough to not be forgotten, eventually you'll be defamed, misunderstood. The monuments they built to you will be torn down. The books they wrote about you will be unwritten. That's the legacy of all the greatness of man. So you have athletic ability. Good for you. Men may be impressed. God is not impressed. You'll live and you'll die. And if you're really good, your name will collect dust in some record book until someone comes along and supplants you. Because eventually someone will do it better than you. So you're beautiful. You're good looking. Good for you. Men may be impressed. God is not impressed. And over the course of time, time will do its work on you. And your beauty will fade. And you'll be supplanted by someone else more beautiful than you. But of course, that isn't the whole story, is it? Because though you may not have anything of true value in yourself before God, by which to commend yourself to God, or even in that sense to man, and though your value before men is so very temporal, so that there may be something to commend you before men, but it's truly fleeting, as Solomon would say in his day, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And from this perspective, we are truly insignificant. Let me ask you this. What if you... In the vein of, uh, of Psalm 8, what if you, insignificant though you are, perhaps beautiful in your day, but that will fade, perhaps intelligent in your day, but that will live to be forgotten, perhaps powerful, capable, wealthy, influential in your day, but that too will fade into history. But what if you, insignificant though you are, what if the God of the universe chose to place upon you value. Not because of anything that you have done, but because he chose to love you. How would that change the way you understand yourself? I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm talking about God-esteem. What if you didn't need to perceive your worth through the lens of man's standards at all? What if you only needed to perceive your worth through the lens of God and his standards? What if, even though by God's standard, you still in yourself had nothing to commend yourself to God or man? What if the God of the universe who created all things nevertheless chose to declare you as having value? What if that God chose to love you? What if that God chose to confer upon you worth? Who could say different? Who could look at you, whom God has chosen to love, upon whom God has conferred worth and value and say you have none. No one could. Who can answer against God? 
how would that change how we see ourselves? What if our value is not rooted in comparing ourselves to others? What if our value is not even rooted in our own perception of ourselves? What if our value is rooted in what God has said about us? And this is the promise of the gospel, is it not? Romans 5, 6 through 9. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You are without strength. You have no value in yourself by which to commend yourself in heaven or upon earth. But when you were without strength, in due time, God loved you so much that Christ died for you. And he died for you not because you were a good person. Even your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But he died for you because he loves you. And in that God loves you, that means God has chosen to see in you worth, value. And when we accept Christ's love, we are placed into an identity with Christ. Thus, we have an identity that is unmistakable and irreplaceable. When at once we are loved by God and we receive that love unto ourselves, it cannot be said that we have no worth because the God of the universe has conferred so much value upon me that he loves me and he chose to give his son to die for me, to forgive me of my sin. And that means that even if no one else on earth sees my value, and even if I don't really see that even in myself, it really doesn't matter. Because the only one that does matter, the one who is the creator of heaven and earth, has placed value on you. And to this end, there's really no place within the scope of the Christian life for the ideas of low self-esteem or low self-worth. Because, of course, we have low self-worth. People with low self-worth rightly assess the situation both in this world and before God. But what we are foolish to do is then to believe that because we have low self-worth, that means we have no worth. Those are not the same thing. Because no one can have no worth who has been loved by God. If God loves you, and He does, enough to send His Son to die on the cross for you, which He did, then it is foolish, and it is inaccurate, and in some sense, we might even say it is offensive to say or to believe that you have no value, that you have no worth. Because if you are in Christ, then Christ's worth rests upon you. He was worthy for you. And you're clothed in His worthiness. Clothed in God's love. But apart from that, Christian, apart from Christ, apart from His mercy, what, what do we have? And this doesn't just apply to being saved. 
Once you've been placed into Christ, once your identity is rooted in who Christ is rather than who you are, once your value is centered in Christ's love for you rather than your love for yourself or your comparisons to other people, Well, once you're there, your dependence upon God does not go away. Jesus said in John 15, verses 1 through 5, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit, excuse me, bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Without me ye can do nothing. Apart from Christ, what are we? Apart from his mercy, what have we? Even we who are in Christ can only please God through abiding in Christ. Our value has been conferred by Christ. Our identity is rooted in Christ and our capacity is empowered by Christ. It is Christ from beginning to end so that your value, your effectiveness, your hope for eternity, it all rests in the finished work of Christ and in your determined submission to Christ's will and His way. And may we never forget that apart from God's mercy, we are very little. But in Christ's mercy... We are very much. Point number two. Who knows what your intercessions might accomplish? In the day when God showed Amos great destruction upon a wicked people who had rejected Amos' message and scorned his prophecies. We'll see more about that next week. Amos looked at those judgments and he wept bitterly for the people of Israel. Then he begged God for mercy. And in this we find several truths. The first being humility. Amos did not take personally the rejection of his message, nor did he allow the rejection of his message to divert the love which he had even for those who had rejected that message. It's tempting. And as I said, we'll talk more about this next week as well. It's tempting to be quick to shake the metaphorical dust off of our feet and joyfully leave the wicked to their fiery demise. It's also difficult at times, is it not, to think that there is any hope for men and women who are so set in their ways to disobey, to follow their own way, and to harden their own hearts against the truth. But what if, Christian, what if... What if your intercession, just that one last time, what if that one last time where they mocked you or they scorned you or they rejected the message and instead of saying, find God, fire, let, let it come down from heaven and consume them, you said just one last time, Lord, forgive. Lord, cease. What if your intercession made the difference in the life of someone who simply needed the opportunity to do right one more time? What if you stand between God and that one who ought to be judged? What if you stand between God and your sibling? What if you stand between God and your spouse? 
What if you stand between God and your children? What if you stand between God and your parents? What if you stand between God and your neighbor? What if you stand between God and your governor? What if you stand between God and your president? And just one more time, you ask, Lord, forgive. And God shows that mercy. And what if... After that one last intercession where God shows mercy on your behalf, on the sake of the righteous, what if then that person finds repentance? And maybe, maybe Christian, you've interceded for someone for a long time. You're tired and you're weary and you're discouraged or you're tempted to be offended or angry or frustrated. Or maybe, you know what, there's that person in your life and you've never interceded. And you've never interceded because that person is just a lost cause. I'm not even going to waste my time interceding for them. Or maybe there's that person who you've never interceded for because in your heart of hearts, you actually don't want them to find repentance. In sort of a Jonah moment, you kind of want them to burn. In Amos' day, he had every right to want to see Israel burn. He had every right to assume, as the prophet of God, that God would bring his judgments regardless. Amos is seeing a vision. Amos says, okay, well, there's the vision. So it is. Grasshoppers, gone. Fires, destroyed. But that's not, what Amos, that, that, that's not the tact Amos chose. Instead, Amos pleaded for God's mercy for a people that had no right to it, certainly didn't deserve it. And God had that mercy. And yes, in Israel's day, perhaps it didn't make that much of a difference. The plumb line eventually came down and Israel succumbed to the judgment of the Lord. But who's to say, Christian, who knows if your intercession might bring mercy unto repentance? Who knows if you might just stand before God and someone who is ripe for judgment and plead for mercy and plead to the Lord for them and the Lord might be found and they might be redeemed. And may our intercessions never fail for those who are in need of God's mercy. Even those who you may not like. Even those who may not deserve it. Because as we're going to consider on our next point, God's judgment is going to come upon those who reject Him. His judgment will not fail. But what if your intercession might just stem the tide of that judgment? And what if in that period of mercy, that one might just find repentance? Is that not worth it, Christian? Final point. God's mercy has limits and is best left untested. God is a merciful God. We thank the Lord for it. He even regarded the intercession of his servant Amos for the nation upon whom he had been sent to, ju to, to proclaim judgments. 
But as he did so, he dropped that plumb line and he said that mercy will not last forever. He was going to hold that plumb line against the nation. And if they were not straight and level on that day, there would be consequences. God is a merciful God. The entirety of the Old Testament and the New reflects the reality that God is a merciful God and we thank Him for His abundant mercy. For as we said in our first point, what are we apart from God's mercy? But God forbid that we should ever lean on God's mercy in order that we might pursue our own way. Mercy exists in order to give time for repentance. It does not exist in order to give time for sin. But unfortunately, we have a tendency to get this confused. We have a tendency to misuse God's mercy. We have a tendency to see God's mercy as a little bit more time to walk in our own way before the hammer drops and it's time to get serious about obedience. Like the child who sees his parents' first warning and second warning as a line to be pushed before they actually have to obey, before their parents actually cross the line and, 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 and do something about it. And though Jesus has taken upon himself our sin so that he has plumbed the wall of our spiritual lives straight and tall. On the day of judgment, when God looks at us, he will see Christ in us, and that wall will be inch perfect, straight and level. Yet there's also a day, which we've spoken of consistently in our Amos series, when God will not just plumb the righteousness of our lives rooted in Jesus Christ, but he will also plumb the deeds of our lives. The plumb line of faith. And the question is this. Are the things which you're doing on a daily basis done in faith? On the day of judgment, will the plumb line of your behaviors before the Lord be straight? Do you come to church in faith or carnality? Do you read your Bible in faith or carnality? What you watch, what you listen to, does it reflect faith or carnality? Do your interactions with your family, your interactions with your friends, your interactions with your neighbors reflect faith or carnality? God is merciful. But there is a point where mercy always gives way to judgment. And if you're living in selfishness, if you're living in carnality, perhaps this is the season of mercy upon you. That you are walking in a manner which is not right before the Lord. And as you look around, you say, you know what? Nothing's happening. I'm doing okay. No consequences. Things are going all right. Chalk that up to God's mercy. Mercy does not exist, Christian, to give you time to sin, though. It exists to give you time to repent. God's mercy has limits and it does not last forever. And it is best that we leave his, that, the, the limits of his mercy untested. So as we close this evening, we contemplate our own lives in light of the visions of Amos 7. Do you see yourselves in light of God's mercy, Christian? Is that how you define yourself? Have you been caught up in the world's ideas of self-esteem? Low self-esteem, high self-esteem, self-affirmation, boosting yourself up, Comparing yourselves to others in order that you might see yourselves in a particular way against the world or against those that are in the world? Or do you see yourselves rightly through the lens of God's mercy? 
For what are we without God's mercy? Yet in God's mercy, we are everything that God would have us to be. We have value. We have worth. It's rooted in Christ in us. Are you living in this light or in the light of your own ideas, Christian? Are you living in this light or are you struggling to achieve in your own strength and finding only in it frustration? Is your worth centered in God or is it centered in yourself or is it centered in society? Is it centered in your parents? Is it centered in your church? Is it centered in your pastor or is it centered in Christ? What about intercession? Are there those in your life for whom you need to be interceding? Those who are walking a path that is not right before the Lord. And maybe you're tired and you've been praying a long time and you've been begging the Lord for mercy and it hasn't seemed to be working. Or you look at that person and you say, you know what? I don't even want to intercede for them. But Christian, what if your intercession makes all the difference? What if you standing between God and judgment for just a brief period of time might make all the difference unto their repentance? And are you living in God's mercy or are you taking advantage of God's mercy? God's mercy is there and it needs to be there because we are weak and we are feeble. We fail. We are frail. But God forbid that we should test the limits of that mercy unnecessarily. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.